Well, 2,000 years ago, a child was born whose life and death and resurrection and teaching have forever changed the world. But why? What did he do? What was he like? Well, the Bible not only tells us the life and times of Jesus, but it also gives us eyewitness accounts of what he said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these first four books of what we call the New Testament. And it also records for us the teaching of his disciples. We call these epistles or letters, a bunch of smaller books, uh, about seven-eighths the way through your Bible. Now, when we read these accounts, we find several metaphors about who Jesus is, several word pictures that describe Jesus. Some he used himself, others his disciples used after. He said he's like a vine, and the church is like his branches. He said he's like a husband, and his people are like his bride. He said he's like light which exposes sin and shows the truth. It says that he's like the word of God, which has come down in the flesh, the word incarnated. He said that he's like bread from heaven, which gives spiritual life. He said that he's like water, which satisfies our quench eternally so. He's like a garden who prunes his people so that they grow. He's also like a farmer who at the end of the days will reap his crop. He's like a mighty warrior who will one day destroy all his enemies. And he's like a king who rules and reigns with power and glory and righteousness. He's the king. And he's like a shepherd And his disciples are like sheep. Now that last one, the sheep-shepherd metaphor or word picture, is used extensively of Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, to my knowledge, it's the only metaphor which Jesus applies to himself for 18 verses straight. You might say the king metaphor is used more often in the New Testament than the shepherd one. But we don't have... Jesus talking about being a king and what that means and what it's like for 18 verses straight in the New Testament. We do have in John chapter 10, 18 verses straight of Jesus talking about him being a shepherd and his disciples being sheep. Now, what that means is that to understand Jesus in no small part means that we need to understand how he's like a shepherd. And to understand Christianity is in no small part to understand something of how we're like sheep. And a good way to ponder Christmas, a good way to ponder his coming at Christmas time is to think about his shepherd-likeness. Jesus explains himself and his plan with this sheep-shepherd metaphor for a few different reasons, I think. One, because it is a rich, multi-layered metaphor. Some word pictures only have one or two corresponding things to them, right? So if Jesus is like light, he's not like light in every way. Some metaphors go deeper than others. The sheep shepherd one goes deep. It's also a familiar word picture for people in his time and people before his time. It's not so much today. Today, we don't know much about the life of a shepherd unless you've watched the movie Babe. That's the only movie I can think of that's about a shepherd. And it's not very accurate because the sheep only pretend to be dumb. They actually can talk, you know. And hence, they lead Babe on this great escapade where he becomes the the shepherd pig, of course. So that's not a good good instruction for us on on the sheep-shepherd analogy. It takes a little bit of work for us in our 21st century American culture to get inside the world 
of an ancient Near East shepherd. But it was a familiar word picture in Jesus' time. And it's also a metaphor that's used extensively in parts of the Bible before Jesus came. We call it the Old Testament. The sheep-shepherd word picture starts as early as Genesis, where God himself is like a shepherd. Joseph, in the very first book of our Bibles, says that God has been his shepherd all my life long, Genesis 48.15. And in the most well-known shepherd-sheep poetry that's ever been written in any language, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23. Now, get this. Jesus didn't call himself a shepherd. He said he was the shepherd. He said he was the good shepherd. To understand Jesus rightly, we have to understand how radical that was that he said that. It was one of those many things, those many things that made his enemies get exactly what he was talking about, and they were infuriated. They were infuriated because it went too far. You see, when Jesus said that he's a shepherd, he wasn't just giving us a random hallmark-ish nice thing to think about. And it wasn't an accident that he said that he was a shepherd. It wasn't coincidence that the Old Testament says God is a shepherd and Jesus says that he's a shepherd. When Jesus says that he's the good shepherd in John 10... Make no mistake, he's equating himself with God. Now that's where we'll end up, John chapter 10. But let's go back a thousand years before Jesus' birth to ponder what King David said in that most famous sheep-shepherd poetry, Psalm 23. Turn there if you have a Bible with you, Psalm 23. We've actually been in a series in the book of Psalms since September And we've come to a trio of psalms in Psalm 22, 23, 24, which are uniquely apropos for Christmas time. So sometimes we take a break from a series that we're in. We're usually studying a book of the Bible. And we'll often, in late December, take a break from that and talk about Jesus' coming in some specific ways. But as we were landing on Psalm 22, 23, 24, right around Christmas time, I thought there was no need for us to go elsewhere. These three psalms, what some have called the cross, the crook, the crown. Psalm 22, we saw last week, is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the crook, the staff of the shepherd. And Psalm 24, which we'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday, is the psalm of the crown, which talks about Jesus as the king of glory. Let's read Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right, we'll run through this psalm one phrase at a time. Notice the first, the Lord is my shepherd. That's not just the first line, that's the overarching theme. That's the umbrella for the rest of the psalm. And each word in that first line is significant. The Lord. You might notice in your Bible that's in caps, Lord, small caps. That's to designate a specific Hebrew word, you might know. The name of God, Yahweh, God's self-disclosed name, We first hear about it in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Remember, God says to Moses, I'm going to send you to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses says, 
When I go to the people and I tell them that the God of our fathers is sending me, is leading me, what should I tell them your name is? When they ask, oh, what's his name? What will I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. In Hebrew, Yahweh, God's self-given name. It means something like the self-existent one. I am who I am. Can you imagine assigning yourself that name? What's your name? I am. I mean, if anyone on this planet does that, it's just a joke, right? It's surely too much. It's way too lofty. It's way too self-centered, self-promoting. When God does it, it's right. I am the one who needs nothing. That's the God, the Lord. That's Yahweh, who David's referring to in Psalm 23. And he says, that Yahweh of the burning bush, of the commissioning of Moses, of the leading of the people, the God of the fathers, the self-existent one, the one who just is, is a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And then David says, he's my shepherd. You have to think through the characteristics of a shepherd. A shepherd would be one who's patient because sheep are slow and, and sheep are dumb. He would have instincts and even wisdom about care and protection and provision. He would have physical strength when it describes little David taking on Goliath. It comments that David was strong and skilled with a slingshot. Why? Because he was used to taking out lions when he was a shepherd boy in the prairie field. A shepherd would be wise. A shepherd would be sacrificial and hardworking. Get this picture out of your head. A shepherd just sitting around eating grapes, lazily writing poetry, just making up tunes on his little harp. No, it's hard work. It's not easy work at all. It's sacrificial work. It's dirty work. And it's intimate work. Shepherds know their sheep. Shepherds know the birth story of each sheep if they've been a shepherd very long. They know even the idiosyncrasies of each of their sheep. They would often name their sheep according to their idiosyncrasies. So that one is pokey, and that one is weird ear, or something like that. I don't know. That one's gimpy. You get it. They know the idiosyncrasies of each of the sheep. They know their tendencies. They know what to watch out for with each one. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Not only is he a shepherd, but he's my shepherd. How personal. He's not the shepherd of Israel. He's not even our shepherd. He's my shepherd. There's experience in that claim, isn't there? Joseph claimed it. God was his shepherd. God has said elsewhere that he's a shepherd of his people, but David has experience that rings in that first phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't just know it externally. I know it experientially and internally. And that means that David, well, he's implying the obvious that he's a sheep. The king thinks of himself as one of the Lord's sheep. As I said, sheep are needy. They're dependent. They're dependent upon a shepherd for almost everything. They're vulnerable. They're easy prey for a a wolf. They have no defense mechanism. They don't have the porcupine's quills. They don't have the badger's teeth. They don't have claws. They don't have the cheetah's speed. They don't blend in. They don't do nothing that helps them 
to ward off a a predator. They're fragile. They break bones easily. They trip over things rather easily. They famously go astray. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Just like sheep are known for doing, we've done that. That's why shepherds are called sheep herders. They have to herd them. They're constantly trying to get them together. They don't have the the grouping instincts that even cows do. Their tendency is to, to spread out. That's why you need pens. And that's why a shepherd has to herd. They're dumb animals. I've heard remarkable stories. One story, someone in our church had some sheep growing up. One story she told me is that they accidentally left out a giant bag of feed once and their sheep ate themselves to death. They didn't have the sense to know when to stop eating. They ate themselves to death. Imagine, you just leave open a bag and you come and find, I don't know how many, 8, 10, 15 dead sheep. Another story this person told me is that they sometimes park themselves head first into a corner and then they won't move because they can't see. (laughs) They assume that whatever's here is also everywhere and they just stay. You don't need to be a biologist to know that that's dumb. (laughs) And again, David knew all this because he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd before he was a king, and so he knows what sheep are like. And he says, the Lord's my shepherd, which means I'm a sheep. Now, the rest of this psalm is made up of 13 different results. 13 results flow from that overarching theme that the Lord is my shepherd. So each one, each of these phrases could be prefaced by repeating the first line. What I mean is, you could say, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you could keep repeating, because the Lord is my shepherd. Or you could say, the Lord is my shepherd. What I mean by that is, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Thirteen phrases, but... But there's some overlap, and so you can really break them down into about five chunks. There are five chunks in Psalm 23. You'll notice in the sermon notes page, we'll see five results that come from the Lord being shepherd. And then we'll go to the New Testament to see a sixth one. It's a bonus one for you. No extra charge on that one. All right, the first result of the Lord being my shepherd, and I'll keep using first person here because David did. I'm content and well-fed. David says, I'm content and well-fed in verses 1 and 2. He says, I shall not want. That's kind of an old way of putting it, even though it's still in our Bibles, our modern English translations today. It doesn't mean I shall not want, like I shall not desire. What it means is I shall not want or lack anything. There's no lack. I'm completely satisfied. I got everything I need. I remember when I first met our youth minister, Greg Schneeberger, and he was boasting of his contentment. Young guy, not married yet, and he was saying, I got my 240SX, it was a car with a giant muffler in the back. You remember those? Uh, I got my skateboard. What else do I need? I loved it. I think he probably has moved on from that now, and eventually he wanted a wife, and that was a good thing, right? Have you ever been to that kind of been in that kind of position where you thought, "I don't need anything." What do you want for Christmas? I don't need anything. It might have been a long time since you've said something like that, but but that's what David is saying on a spiritual level. I don't lack anything. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Thinking from the perspective of a sheep, he's, he's saying, I'm full. You see, sheep don't lie down unless they're full. They stand up to eat. They're always looking for food. It's rare that they actually do lie down. They lie down when they're full, and they lie down when there's no danger, and they lie down when there's no sense of urgency. And if you pull any one of those from the picture, then a sheep won't lie down. 
lie down in green pastures, meaning they've eaten, they're full, and they're laying in what is more food. It's an idyllic scene. He leads me beside still waters. Not stagnant waters that would become contaminated, but clean water that's moving, but just barely moving. You see, if it's rapidly moving water, it wouldn't be safe. Sheep could fall in and head downstream. If it's rapidly moving water, it wouldn't be easy to drink from. So this is just perfect, clean spring water that's almost still and easy to drink. And this kind of water wouldn't have been easy to come by in most areas of the ancient Near Near East. Shepherds had to know where these kind of drinking spots were. And they had to plan their trips around these kind of drinking spots. They'd have to know how far one is from another. They had to be watching weather and climate to see whether it would be good still since the last time they were at that watering hole. Still waters. He leads me right there. Of course, this picture here is of green pastures and still waters. These are spiritual terms, right? Spiritual word pictures. It's not really talking about physical food and and good, clean water. It means that God feeds us and he satisfies us spiritually. He feeds us with his word. He satisfies us with the privilege of prayer, and we're refreshed with his people in our worship of God. That's the path to true contentment, not wanting, not lacking. Remember what David said in Psalm 1611, that it's in God's presence where there's the fullness of joy. It's at his right hand where there are forever pleasures, Fullest joy, forever pleasures. Nothing is like that in this world. We know that, even though most of the time we don't live like we know that. We go elsewhere. We do what Jeremiah 2 says, where there God lamented that his people had deserted him, the fountain of living water, and instead they've hewn out for themselves these Big, muddy cisterns that don't hold any water. God calls on the heavens to be appalled at that. Jeremiah 2. Not David. David understands that it's the Lord. And in him, where there are green pastures, still waters, and true contentment. How about you? Are you restless? Does this in any way describe your life? Happy sheep, full, lying in green pastures, satisfied, being led to still waters. Does your contentment come from God's green pastures and still waters? Is that enough for you? David's content and well-fed, secondly... He says that God rescues me from death. He rescues me from death. That's the second thing it means that the Lord is his shepherd. Notice in verse 3, this phrase, one short sentence. He restores my soul. Now to fully understand those words, you have to understand a rather odd sheep thing. I probably should have said this sooner. I know nothing about sheep firsthand. I know nothing from my own experience. I don't know if I've actually ever been five feet away from a live sheep. But almost every preacher has a book or two on Bible background. There are these dictionaries, and you can look up things like sheep or shepherd. And then experts who've learned these things from archaeology and finding old manuscripts have pieced together descriptions of Not just what modern day shepherding would be like, but what ancient Near East shepherding would be like. And so you really can get a good grasp of what a shepherd would would be like and what he would do in some of these books. There's also a popular level book that you might already be familiar with. Philip Keller is a shepherd who's written a book called 
a shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm. And that could be a very helpful tool in starting to be familiar with the multi-layers of meaning that are in Psalm 23 based on the many dynamics that go into the sheep-shepherd relationship. For instance, shepherds apparently know that one of the biggest dangers for sheep is when they become cast, C-A-S-T. That means flipped over, on their back, wiggling, unable to right themselves up. You've seen bugs like that, right? Especially if you spray. For some reason, they get in contact with this spray and they go to their back. At least the bugs at my house do. I don't know about yours. But they're always on their back doing this. And, you know, you've seen bugs do that, but, but sheep do that as well. And sheep can die within hours when they're cast. Gases build up inside and they can quickly suffocate. That's why a shepherd is often counting sheep. It's not so we can go to sleep. I don't know where that came from. A shepherd is counting sheep often with a touch of anxiety. If one's missing, he's going to have to go find it. And if that sheep that's gone missing is cast, well, he's going to have to find it and turn it over and probably massage the blood flow back into the legs because they've they've laid there. Things have just gone wrong. Now legs don't work. They can't stand. Or or he has to carry it. So you've, you've seen sometimes pictures of shepherds with sheep on their shoulders. Well, the word restore in verse 3 literally means to turn over, to flip over. To flip me around. I think that means that David sees himself as a cast sheep who's been rescued from spiritual death. Hours away from death. Wiggling. Panicking. Absolutely unable to right himself up. Absolutely dependent on the shepherd restoring his soul. Do you see yourself in that kind of trouble? Do you see yourself in that kind of spiritual dilemma? Is it that bad or do you think it's, it's more like someone who's out at sea and they just need, a, they need to be tossed some flotation device, but it's only hour one and they're, you know, they're doing all right. They're thankful when the rescue comes, but it's help. It's not resuscitation. Do you see that all your wanderings are this dangerous, as dangerous as a a sheep who could so quickly take a wrong step and fall, roll, be on his back? Whether or not we get caught in any specific sin, whether or not that sin is culturally acceptable or not, every sin is waywardness and every bit of waywardness needs the Lord's rescue, resuscitation. That's the problem. But David thinks the Lord has rescued him, has flipped him over, has turned him around, has restored his life. Thirdly, he believes the Lord leads him in right paths. He leads me in the right path, he says at the end of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness is what it says in the ESV. It's literally right path. So in the sheep analogy here, think about it. It's those paths that lead to green pastures. It's those paths that lead to still waters. It's those paths that lead back home to a pen. The Lord knows those paths. He knows the safe one. He knows the one that will have better weather eventually. And that right path is also the righteous path. He's leading. We have to trust that. We have to trust his ways. And notice David says he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Why does he say that? Well, this is all over the Bible. That God does certain things for his glory. Or for his name. 
or for even his fame. It's a right thing for God to seek his own glory, for God to seek his own fame because he is the glorious one. It's not right for us to do it. It's getting things broken and backwards where we're trying to be like God rather than give him glory, we're trying to steal his glory. But we're actually, if we get this right, we're actually glad that the Lord pursues his glory and and stakes his commitment to us in his name, not in us. You see that? He's rooted his commitment to David in himself. God does it for his name's sake, not totally for David's sake. So how about you? Are you making up your own path? Are you trusting the Lord's path? Are you being led by him? Are you going to his word and saying, well, what does it say? What is the right path here? That's the path that leads to quiet waters, to still pastures, to full spiritual bellies. Do you rest in his commitment to his name? Do you rest in the fact that the hope is outside of you and God has made a covenant with himself? David says, he leads me in the right path. Fourth, he says that God protects and comforts me. He protects and comforts. In verse four, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Now, it doesn't seem like anyone's too sure what the valley of the shadow of death really means, or for that matter, even how it should be translated. It's not clear whether death is actually part of the equation or not. I don't think it matters. We're definitely talking about a valley of dark shadows, a valley of darkness, maybe a valley of death darkness. And David says he doesn't fear it at all. There's no fear in that valley of the soul, which sometimes can be as dark as death. We sometimes call it depression. David says there's no fear for him in the valley of dark shadows. Think about a shepherd leading his sheep home. It's becoming dusk. Dark shadows on rough terrain could be precarious for shaky sheep. David says there's no fear. There's no fear when in a dark valley and there's possible danger. A dark valley can sometimes be a great place for a wolf to do some hunting. It can possibly be a great place for thieves to camp out and wait to steal sheep. No fear. No fear when death could be imminent. No fear when death even is imminent. There's a reason Psalm 23 is often read at funerals. In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Jesus died to destroy the one who had the power over death, that's the devil, so that we could be delivered from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to fear death. There was a sad and yet glorious memorial service here on Friday. Uh, One of our own, Heidi Swenson, went home to be with the Lord, leaving behind a a young family, seven kids. I kept thinking the whole time as Terry was reading parts of her journal, as we were all hearing great testimony of her faith in the Lord and his goodness and sweetness and nearness to her in these In these dark days, I kept thinking of Numbers 23.10. There Balaam says, May my end be like this. May I die the death of the righteous. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Just the presence of the shepherd, shepherds tell us, has a calming effect on the sheep. Just him being there, the the sheep are a little less rambunctious, less agitated, a little more content. David says, it doesn't matter what valley I'm in. It doesn't matter what shadows are cast. I won't be afraid because you're with me. That's it, you're with me. Is that enough? Well, David also says that his rod and his staff comfort him. God's rod and his staff. A staff was a walking stick used by shepherds for a few different things. One would be stability on rough terrain. It would be also for directing sheep. Hey, you get over there. Something like an extension of his arm. And it's also for pulling sheep by the crook. You need one to come with you. You can wrap it around the neck and you can say, get over here. The rod was a different instrument. It's a smaller stick often used to drive away predators and sometimes used for getting the sheep's attention in a disciplinary sort of way. But the rod and the staff are symbols of the sheep's, I'm sorry, of the shepherd's authority. They're symbols of his strength and they're symbols of his vigilant care for the sheep. So David playing the sheep here, says, just seeing your rod and your staff is enough to comfort me. Even his rod, though it hurts, I know it's good. There have been times where his rod has kept me from a cliff, has kept me from trouble. And so now I see the rod and there's comfort. In fact, he says in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Get this. The enemies are coming in, and David says, God and I sit down at the table and we eat. It's a picture of hospitality. It's a picture of fellowship. And obviously, it's a picture of peace and comfort and relaxation. Who has a fancy meal when a hurricane's about to blow into the house? Well, David says, right in the presence of my enemies, just when they're about to get me, I sit down with you. you you've laid before me a meal for communion. So where do you go for protection and for comfort, what do you trust in? What do you seek? Do you trust him even in the darkest days? Do you know his rod and his staff? Just seeing his rod and his staff, does that give comfort to you? David also says that he receives and cares for me. Fifthly, he says, God receives and cares for me. We already saw that with verse 5, that you prepare a table before me. Hospitality, communion. And then he says, you anoint my head with oil. We're not used to this picture, but this is a, a custom of hospitality in ancient Near East. Like, like foot washing would be a, a way of entering someone's house or preparing before a meal. So getting uh, anointed with oil as a symbol of refreshment from the host would have been common in hospitality. My cup overflows, another picture of hospitality. That may not be a welcome and gracious, welcoming and gracious thing in our culture to fill up someone's wine glass all the way to the very top. They're going to think you have a problem if you fill it up all the way to the top. Right? They're going to think this is not one of those nice parties if you feel it all the way to the top. But, but you can imagine in a different culture at a different time that that could be a symbol of warm hospitality and celebration. He fills my wine glass to the top. Verse 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That might sound overly optimistic. Maybe 
might even sound naive to you, but, but don't think that David is claiming something like the promises of a health, wealth, and prosperity TV preacher. David doesn't assume that goodness and mercy following him all the days of his life means that there won't be any trouble. Remember, he already talked about not fearing anything even when he's in the valley of the shadow of death. He's already talked about sitting down at God's table even when his enemies are threatening. What he's saying is that God is good and merciful even in the trouble. Sometimes he's good and merciful even through the trouble. Because sometimes the trouble is God's good rod. Not always, but sometimes it is. And he's good and merciful in the trouble, no matter how deep the valley, no matter how dark the shadow, because he's with me. And because he leads me to green pastures and still waters. David's convinced of that kind of mercy. Surely this will be the case. He's convinced of God's goodness and mercy, following him all the rest of his days. Like a sheepdog, God's goodness and mercy will keep after me. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he says. God's dwelling with his people is a frequent theme in the Bible. We know it's a big thread that runs all the way through, and it's a major theme because the story ends like that. Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Dwelling. David wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you? Do you know his gracious welcome? Do you know his fellowship and communion? Do you know his glass-topping-off sort of ways? Do you know his lavish table? Well, now we need to move to the New Testament quickly, but, but first we have to see a bridge from Psalm 23 to the New Testament because there is a bridge. In Isaiah 40... We're told that God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms, the hurt ones, he'll pick them up. He'll carry them in his bosom. He'll gently lead those who are with young. He'll go slow with those who are held up. Ezekiel 34 says over and over and over again that God will come and he will shepherd his people. Now get this. Micah chapter 5 ties this to the Christmas story. Micah 5, in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, the city where Jesus was born, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel. And his origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This one is from ancient days and he's going to be born. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The shepherd will be their peace, their contentment, their green pasture, their still water. One more bridge before we get to the New Testament is in Zechariah 13, verse 7, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God is a shepherd? Well, a messenger, a shepherd on behalf of God, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Do you know of where else that phrase is used? It's in the New Testament, at the cross, Matthew 26. 
Matthew quotes Zechariah 13 as Jesus is struck and the disciples flee. The shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. Which now leads us to this bonus point here, the sixth thing in your notes, that the shepherd came and died for me. It's in John chapter 10 that we find those 18 verses I talked about where Jesus camps out on this sheep and shepherd metaphor. I heard some of you turning already. Hopefully you're in John 10. Let me read just some of the verses in John 10 about the sheep and the shepherd. Starting in verse 3, Jesus says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him. They know his voice. You can skip to verse 7 and see there that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. They don't care for the sheep. They want to steal the sheep. But the sheep won't listen to them. Not the true ones. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And then he says more about this in verse 14. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of Israel. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus here declares that he is that divine shepherd of the Old Testament, that promised Messiah shepherd from Micah 5 and Zechariah 13. But here now we see what Zechariah 13 meant about this shepherd being stricken. Jesus says explicitly, I lay my life down for the sheep. He's also, he says, the door gate of the sheep pen. You enter by him. You enter the pen of safety through him or you don't enter at all. You enter when you hear his voice. His sheep hear his voice and they come. And then once they come, they know his voice and they follow him. So he knows his sheep and the sheep know him. And he unites his sheep. You see how much there's talk of oneness here. One fold, one flock, all together. And he says he's still adding to the sheepfold. He talks about that in Luke 15. In Luke 15, he says, What if a man has a hundred sheep and he's lost one of them? Doesn't he go and leave the 99 in the open country to find the one that's lost? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Cast sheep, perhaps? Injured sheep? Lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who turns, than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. These righteous are not really righteous. They just think that they're righteous. They're quote-unquote righteous. The righteous don't think they need repentance. The sinner who knows he's a wayward sheep knows he needs rescue, knows he needs repentance, knows that he needs a shepherd. Jesus is the Lord shepherd of Psalm 23 and that's why he came and that's why he died, which means that God has shown his care and his patience his wisdom and his skill, his affection, supremely in Jesus, his son, who lived and died and was raised. Remember, Psalm 22 is a psalm of the cross. 
the order is interesting, isn't it? The order of Psalm 22, 23, 24. It's almost like the canon of the Bible. The Bible's organization is telling us that you have to know the cross before you can know the shepherd. Or it's telling us that God in Jesus is a shepherd to all who truly see that they're wayward sheep, who truly see that they need rescue. I pray you would today call on him and be saved, that you would rather hear his voice for the first time when you'd come. Let me close by reading to you something from David Paulison, great author, biblical counselor. Not too long ago, he wrote a blog post which is anti-Psalm 23. Psalm 23 in reverse. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down dark paths. And still I insist. I want to do what I want to do, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free, falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. Oh, what a different Psalm 23 is. Which one is you? Which one will you pursue?